We've been in this series where we've been looking that when life is difficult and life is hard and we get on our knees and we pray, God, will you answer my prayer? Usually we come with preconceived ideas on how God is going to answer that prayer. When we're sick, we go to God and we say, God, heal me. God, take care of this. Take away this issue that my body's dealing with. When we have an issue that surrounds our emotions, Lord, take away the depression. Lord, take away the the anxiety that I'm dealing with. And we expect that God is going to do it. When we have an interpersonal relational issue, we pray, God, uh, will you fix that person? Will you fix this problem? Will you address the issue that I'm dealing with? And we expect God is going to fix it. And at the end of the day, when we pray, our assumption is is that we will, like in every fairy tale, the storyline will go and they lived happily ever after, right? They were healed. Uh, They no longer had the emotional distress. And, and the dynamics of the relationship were all taken care of. And everything gets to, uh, tied up with a nice, neat bow, and God has answered our prayer. But what happens in those emotional moments, in those medical moments, in those relational moments, when you get on your knees and you pray, God, will you address this? God, will you meet my needs? God, will you address this situation in my life? And God answers our prayer and does the exact opposite of what you're wanting. So you're praying for a medical condition. You're saying, Lord, heal me. And God doesn't heal you. In fact, God allows that medical issue to get even worse. You have a relational issue. And you say, God, heal this relationship. Heal this marriage. Heal this friendship. And God allows the marriage to continue to fall by the wayside. It allows the the friendship to dissolve. What about if you're dealing with depression or anxiety? Lord, you, you say, heal me. Take away these feelings, these struggles. And God's answer to his prayer is, I'm going to allow trials and tribulations to come. If you thought you were anxious before, buckle your seatbelt. It's only going to get worse. That is what the book of Habakkuk is all about. And if you haven't been here, and I know we've got still a lot of people gone on trips and all of that, and so maybe it's been a little difficult to connect all this, so let me help you out where we've been so far. Habakkuk is living about 200 years after King David and King Solomon, and he's proclaiming a message as a prophet to the southern nation of Judah. Israel and Judah had split up. Ten tribes had gone to the north, two tribes had gone to the south, and it was a time of great disarray in the nation of Israel. Because of that, instead of pursuing God, they had pursued all the gods of the neighboring countries, and they had come just as pagan in some ways as the other countries around them. And God is now going to have a word with Habakkuk because Habakkuk has knocked on God's door. And Habakkuk has said, God, how long in chapter 1 are you going to allow violence, perversion, seduction, and all kinds of corruption? How long are you going to allow this stuff to take place before you're going to deal with it? God, the God I know, doesn't let sin go idly by. He addresses it. He brings it to a stop. And he makes sure that people are living in obedience with him. And God, it sure seems right now like you're looking at sin and you don't care. And he laments to God with regards to that. And God in his faithfulness responds. And he responds to Habakkuk. And he tells Habakkuk in the end of chapter 1, Listen, here's what I'm going to do. You're right. I'm not going to stand oddly by and watch this take place. 
And I'm going to deal with it. But Habakkuk, I know you've been praying for something, but I'm going to do something so different that you wouldn't even be able to believe it had I told you in the first place. And then he tells him what he's going to do. He says in verse 5, I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, it's the same group, this empire from northern Iraq, this wicked and violent people, I'm going to raise them up and they're going to come and they're going to take you over. They're going to pillage your land, they're going to enslave your people, and I'm going to do this to bring discipline on my people, he says, so that they will know that disobedience is not the way that they can go. They're going to learn what it means to obey their God. And aghast, Habakkuk says, wait a minute, I prayed for revival and you're bringing discipline. I prayed for uh, rebirth and you are talking about our nation being knocked down. That's not what I prayed for. That's not what I wanted the answer to my prayer to be. But God says, listen, that's what's going to happen. And we understand that because the answer that God gives is completely and utterly opposite of what Habakkuk was praying for. And in some ways, from a human standpoint, the absolute um, insanity of God's plan. Think about this. God says to his people... You are a wicked people. You are a sinful people. You are an evil people. You're not doing what you should do. You're not following my ways. And so here's how I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get a more wicked, more evil, more sinful, more perverted, more idolatrous people, and they're going to come and they're going to give you the spanking of a lifetime. And Habakkuk, if he had lots of hair, probably was pulling out his hair going, how can this happen? God, how can you do this? And yet... The faith that Habakkuk shows is at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, Habakkuk says, listen, I'm going to trust you, God. And I don't understand your plan, and I don't understand your purposes, and I don't get how you're going to see these events unfold, but you are the everlasting God. You are the loving God. You are a merciful God. You're a God who does exact judgment, and I'm going to wait patiently until Uh, you see fit to address the situation. But what's underlying in Habakkuk's issue is how could God use a more sinful people to, in essence, bring out divine judgment and divine discipline on the people of God? It didn't make sense. And the question that he asks is, but what about them? What about them? Growing up, I remember one specific instance where my uh, brothers were fighting and we were wrestling on the ground in, in the living room, not the family room. Family room you could wrestle in. The living room is where mom had all her nice stuff. And we're wrestling and things are getting knocked down and my dad came in and, and he yelled, cut it out and get to your rooms. And we all scattered like a bunch of rats to each of our rooms. And I remember I heard my dad coming and And he came to my room first. And I said, but dad, I didn't start it. But dad, they were the ones that did more of it. Why are you in my room first? It's not fair that you would bring forth your judgment against me when others are far more guilty. I said, what about them, dad? What about my brothers? When are they going to get it? And my dad said, in due time, son, in due time. Of which, and I didn't say this in the first service, my older brother said, Dad, take all the time you need. (laughs) 
You see, when we are put under the discipline of God, sometimes God uses very, very, um, humanly speaking, odd things in our lives. He allows, in some ways, the evil to prosper and the faithful to get knocked down. And in those moments, just as Habakkuk did, we say, but what about them? When are they going to get it? When are you going to address them? What about these corrupt individuals? These people that seem to get away with murder. What about them? And God says to Habakkuk, in due time, I'm going to address it. Now I want you to know this morning, this is not a fun passage of scripture. In fact, this scripture that we're going to look at gives us five woes. Five woes that he gives to the Babylonian nation. Because he's going to turn his attention from Judah, his people, to now this people that he's raising up. And he says, listen, I'm going to raise you up for a season, but because of your sin, because of your idolatry, because of your disobedience, here's what I'm going to do to you in the future. In due time, Habakkuk, I will address the sins of your enemy. And in five woes, he tells them what's going to happen. And in some ways, if you want to follow along, this is literally, as it says in verse 6, this is uh, a taunt. A taunt. He's taunting the, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. God is, is in essence saying, you just wait. Your day is coming. Now I want you to know that this woe is by far the greatest rebuke that God ever uses. This is as harsh of language as God would ever use with people. And I want you to know that Jesus, the Son of God, used woes as well. Remember Jesus in Matthew 23 says on numerous occasions, Woe to you Pharisees. And he unloads on them. He smacks them around. You've done this and you've done that. You, 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 you look clean, but you're dirty. You look alive, but you're dead. Woe to you. And then we see Jesus in Matthew 11 use woes against a whole people group where he says to a whole group of individuals, in fact, cities, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Sidon. Had the miracles that took place in other places happened in you, they would have believed, but you didn't. You were rebellious and you fought against it. So woe to you. The most severe words that God can give. And I want you to recognize that woe will come on the day of judgment. For every name that's not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And God will say one of two things to you. Well done, good and faithful servant, or woe to you. And that leads us to this passage now that we have to ask some questions. And the question we have to ask is, what way are we going to go? On our, we just got back from a trip out towards the East Coast, and we were in uh, uh, central or eastern Ohio, and we were in the countryside, and, and the worst thing in the world that could have happened to us did in our technologically advanced days. My phone that I had hooked up to the speakers of the car that was telling me exactly where I needed to go gave me very, very sad words. Cell phone coverage gone. Oh boy. I had this wonderful robotic woman telling me wherever I needed to go, turn left here and 100 feet, turn right there, and I could follow her. And as long as I followed what she was saying, then, then the non-robotic woman next to me wouldn't get mad. Okay? But now I was told, I'm out. I'm gone. You're on your own, big guy. 
And I came to a fork in the road. And I sat there, and I had no idea what to do. Do I go to the left? And what happens if that takes me right back where I was before? I have no idea. These roads spun around and did all kinds of crazy things. If I go to the right, I'll get even more lost. What, what do I do? And life is like that, right? We go through life, and we get to a point where we have to make a decision. And there are decisions in our lives that aren't that big. Today you made a decision to wear what you're wearing. It's not going to impact you deeply. You made a decision on whether to eat breakfast or not or what to have. You made a decision on what movie you were going to watch last night or not watch. And today you're going to make a decision on what you do with your afternoon. And nah, these are pretty small decisions that you're not thinking through or working through all that much. But there are bigger decisions that will come, that will be a true fork in the road, that if you go to the left, your life will turn out one way. If you go to the right, your life will turn out in another way. And those are uh, maybe uh, what college you're going to go to, or who you're going to marry, or, or uh, uh, how many kids you might uh, expect to have, or what job you may take, or, or all manner of things, big decisions. And what we have before us in Habakkuk chapter 2 is a fork in the road. There are two ways that we can go. And the Bible is clear that life is full of decisions spiritually. Think about Joshua when he's talking to the people in the promised land. He says, choose this day who you're going to serve. You're going to serve God or you're going to serve the gods of the Amorites. You've got to make a decision. Uh, um, We are told uh, that Jesus said there are two ways. You can go the broad way that leads to destruction that's filled with lots of people, or you can go the narrow way. You have a decision to make. Elijah, the prophet, said, you've got to stop vacillating between two opinions. Either God is God or the God of the Baals is God. And before us this morning, God declares, woe's the Babylon. And we need to ask the question, are we going to go the way of Babylon as a people, as a nation, or will we go the way of the prophet who lives by faith and trusts that God has a plan and a purpose. So with that all before us, with a very long introduction, let's look at the opening verses of chapter 2, and then we'll uh, hit each of the woes as we go. So chapter 2, starting in verse 2, it says, And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, here's step, here's path number one. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine, or some translations, wealth is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's stop there. Father God, we ask your blessing on the reading, the teaching, and the hearing of your word. I pray, Lord, that whether we're speaking or whether we're receiving, we will do so to the glory of you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We have a choice. Are you going to go one of two ways? The first way that we can go is seen in our text very clearly in the five woes. Will we forsake God? Will we forsake God and pursue sin? Will we forsake God and pursue sin? Babylon is a type of rebellious man. It's an example 
of rebellious nations and rebellious people. And so as we look at this, we see that the nation of Babylon has made a decision. It has seen God in his celestial beings of all that he's created. They have seen God and his power through the people of Israel. And they have made a decision, instead of following God and pursuing his ways and pursuing his word, they have made a decision they are going to make a name for themselves and go that way without any regard for God's plans or purposes in their life. And as a result of that, God says, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to bring you low. And he addresses five of these woes. Why were they woes? Because they were sinning grievously against the Lord. And these sins are seen in their evil deeds. Write that down. We know that one forsakes God. They don't even have to say anything. We can just watch it through their life. They were being evil in what they were doing. Now I want you to notice that scholars say that we can draw out applications from the nation of Babylon in two ways. Number one, we should stop and examine our nation and ask the question, are the sins of Babylon or the evil deeds of Babylon the evil deeds of the United States? Number two, scholars say that this is a rebuke against a particular Babylonian, that Babylonian or Chaldean man was Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest of kings and leaders of the Babylonian empire. And so we have to ask the question, is this true of us as a country? And is it true of us as a person? Is what is being said about Nebuchadnezzar, could that be said about me? And so I want to look at these woes, I'll try to move as quickly as possible, and then I want to show you the second path we can take and why it would be best to go that route. The first sin that comes is the sin of pride. It's a sin of pride. They are pumped up. They are filled with arrogance, it says. They are filled with all kinds of ideas that they're the best. The Babylonians thought they were the best in the world. Nazi Germany believed that they were the best. And they believed that they deserved all of Europe because they were the superior race. They were the superior people. It didn't have no concern that they would murder six million Jews because they were superior to the inferior Jewish people. And so they said, listen, because we're better, we get to do whatever we want, take whatever we want, treat people however we want, because we are the better nation. And so pride, that universal sin, leads to evil deeds. Well, what does it lead to? First of all, insatiability. Write that down somewhere. It's not in your notes. Insatiability. The text tells us in verse 5, His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. Greed was a problem. When you think you're number one, then you think you deserve everything. And Babylon was taking over lands because they said, well, we're a superior nation. We're a better people. And so we deserve all this stuff. And so they would go into lands and they would plunder and pillage all of the things that the people had, all the gold, all the silver. They would take it and they would take it from those lands and bring it back to the empire of Babylon. And they could never get enough. They were always hungry for more. And so they would conquer, and they would conquer, and they would conquer, with no thought of what they were doing to the people groups that they were conquering. 
And they could never get enough. They were, had an insatiable appetite for more stuff and more things. And then I think about us as a country. And I think about the billions of dollars in debt that we are as consumers. Why? Why is it that we have so much debt? Because like the Babylonians, we never have enough. I got to have more. I got to have more. I got to have more. And so we build bigger homes and we build bigger garages and we build bigger barns, just like the, the foolish farmer who says, I got to have more. I got to have more. I got to accumulate more and more stuff. And then when we don't have enough room, we buy a storage shed. And when we don't have enough room in the storage shed, we move to renting storage space so that we can just keep putting our stuff more and more. We can never tell ourselves no, so we keep saying yes, yes, and yes. The sin of insatiability, of greed, of getting more, having more, is something that was true in Babylon, and it's true in America today. Notice the second thing that we see. The second thing that we see is not only insatiability, but invincibility. Notice what he says, starting in, uh, let's see here, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. That's an important phrase there, by the way. So if you underline or, or circle, that's an important place. Why would they rest their nest on high? To be safe from the reach of harm. What the Babylonians had done is around their cities, they had built massive fortifications. The Babylonians and Chaldeans were known to have walls more than 30 feet high. And the walls were so wide, you could have two lanes of traffic on the top of the wall. These were deep walls, and these were tall walls. And they would perch themselves on these walls, and in some ways they would scoff at any invader that tried to come. And what they did is made it even more difficult that around the 30-foot walls they had moats. So give your idea of a medieval castle, and that's what you had around these major cities of Babylon. And they would sit back, and they would say, no one can touch us. And anybody who came, they would scoff. There's no way that you can do anything against us. They had this air of invincibility. Nobody can stop us, not even God himself. Well, how much do we have to go back in human history to remember that man built a boat? The RMS Titanic. And man said, this is a boat so strong. This is a boat so powerful. This is a boat so pristine, so magnificent. Not even God can bring it down. What happened? It was brought down. I'm not going to presume God brought it down, but I'm just going to say it, it, it wasn't invincible. And history reminds us of that. As a nation here in the United States, do we not struggle with an air of invincibility? We're laughing right now, quite frankly, scoffing at the idea that a dictator in North Korea might be able to hurl a missile to the little island of Guam, let alone to our mainland. We just don't ever think it will happen. And that's what brings us down so low when an event like 9-11 happens, because we ask, how in the world could this have happened? How could we have been hit? How could, how could this have happened? And like Babylon, we here in America are filled with this invincibility that we'll never be touched. That maybe even God might not be able to bring us down. 
But we're going to learn that the nation of Babylon comes down hard and it comes down fast and it wasn't invincible. But what about us as individuals? As young people especially, we think we're invincible. We think we're going to live forever. We think that, that nothing could stop us. I learned very quickly that an elevated blood pressure can bring this big boy down. Learned that last week. Learned that real quick. That I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as powerful as I think I am. That a, just a little blip on the screen can change my whole day and maybe even my whole life. We are not as strong as we think we are. So the arrogance of us thinking we can trailblaze our own path away from God is total idiocy. Because we are finite, frail creatures. And God says, listen, your life is short. And instead of trying to make a uh, a, uh, kingdom of your own, you need to follow me. We're not invincible. Notice next, the woe to injury, verses 12 through 14. For the stone... Uh, let's see here. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah. Injury. Woe to you who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that these people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Let's stop there. God says to the nation of Babylon, listen, you're using people. You're using people, and what the people of Babylon were doing is they would take over a a people group, and then we see this in the book of Daniel, by the way, they take over a people group, and they take all of the strongest, most capable people, and they bring them back to their homeland. And they take them, and they say, you're going to come, and you're going to build our cities, and you're going to build our fortresses, and you're going to build our museums, and our gardens. You're going to build our infrastructure. But here's what you're never going to do. You're never going to experience the blessing of it. You're going to labor, you're going to labor. The the text literally means to the point of death. You're going to kill you as you labor. You're going to work so hard, you're going to die. And you will never step foot in that museum. You will never enjoy that roadway. You will never enjoy that palace. You will work and never see the fruits of your labor. It's not going to happen. And then I ask myself, is that true of us as a nation? And you read some of the reports of what we've done to the undeveloped parts of our world. How we as a superpower have gone and and pillaged places like Africa and used people. And I know that we can't right every wrong, but have we ever wondered the clothes that we wear, the shoes that are on our feet, some of the things that we use in everyday life, the amount of slavery that's going on so we can have the nicest of things. Do we recognize we live in a culture that promotes injury against the marginalized, against the weak. And then I ask the question personally, do I injure people so that I might find personal gain? Do I ruin a person's reputation so I get an account? Do I step over people so I get the promotion? Do I, do I uh, belittle or make fun of a kid because I want to sit at the popular kid's table? What am I willing to do? Who am I willing to hurt as an individual so that I might be able to build a kingdom of my own? You see, the heart of Babylon is in the United States, but I would say the heart of Babylon is beating in our chests. We are willing to injure For our sake and our glory. Notice the next woe. Incitement. Incitement. 
verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Wow, God gets really, really um, sensitive and delicate here. And what he says is that the Babylonians, what they would do is that in essence they were winning by seduction. And the idea here was that the Babylonians would come and they would come to the neighboring areas and they would pretend to be a friend, to be a neighbor, to be hospitable. Hey, we're nice people. Can't we get together? Can't we do things together? Let's live life together and all of that. All the while, nefarious ideas were in their head. We're going to fake them out. We're going to deceive them into thinking that we actually care about them. But in the process, we're going to take them over and destroy them. And God gives this picture that in essence what they're doing, and it's an incredible picture. Remember, this is 2,500 years ago, okay? He says the Babylonians are going to give their neighboring neighbors a drink but they're going to put something in it that causes their neighbors to be so intoxicated that they can't stop what the Babylonians are going to do. What he just described is the culture of what will happen in the coming weeks on college campuses everywhere, right? Unsuspecting women, maybe even some men, will go to a party They'll think they're having a good time. They'll think that someone likes them. And little do they know, they'll be handed a drink. They'll have something more into it. And before they know it, they're in a place they don't want to be, doing things they never thought they would do. And they wake up with regret and all kinds of sadness and brokenness as a result of that. And what was the whole theme? I'm your friend. I like you. I care about you. All of it is a lie. And the Babylonians say, we care about you. We like you and everything. Here, have a drink. And little do you know, one Once you drink this drink, you're going to lose all your inhibitions and we are going to expose you and we are going to use you in whatever way we deem fit. They incited sin by intoxicating their neighbors. And God says, this is no good. Notice idolatry. One final woe. Idolatry, verses 18 through 20. He goes on and he says, what profit is in an idol... When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. He says, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Let's stop there. What he's saying to the Babylonians is, listen. What you've done is you've created a kingdom so vast a kingdom so impressive that you have become a god unto yourself. If you turn back a page, notice in verse 11 of chapter 1, God says this, guilty men whose own might is their god. So they've created such a vast empire that they start to think that they are truly god. They start to think that they are the eternal, everlasting God. That they will last forever. Again, there's no better picture in modern day of this than Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany, Hitler was believing that he was so great, he was so powerful, that his nation, the Third Reich, would last for a thousand years. 
Where did he get that thousand years? The millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Hitler actually thought that he, in essence, was the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that he was bringing heaven on earth with the Aryan nation. And here to this day in Virginia, even yesterday, we see people that still espouse that hate and that belief that they are God because they are superior in their own assessment. And then I look to America and I ask the question, are we so invincible? Are we so enamored with all our strength and all our commerce and all our power that we think that what we've created will be eternal? That it was so great and powerful, no one will ever be able to stop us? That we've created gods of our own, and we have, haven't we? Prosperity is our God. So we follow money, and we pursue money, and we pay homage to money, and to things, cars, and houses, and clothing, and technology. We have more than the world ten times over has, and we can't get enough because these are our gods, and we want to worship them, and we want to adore them, and pay homage to them. Pleasure is a, is a God that we've created. And so we pursue it and we can't get enough of it. And so more than a quarter of all internet searches are given towards pleasure. We can't get enough of this stuff because this becomes our God. And what God says is, when you need your gods the most, they will fail you. And how many times do we need a stock market bubble to crash to recognize that our trust and our hope can't be in money? It can't be in stuff. How many times do we need to see broken marriages and broken relationships to know that seeking pleasure will never accomplish what we want in this life? There's a lot of Babylon in the heart of America. And there's a lot of Babylon in the heart of each and every one of us. And sometimes we're willing to give. Now here's the crazy thing. This regard goes so, this, this sense of we deserve it, uh, we own it. Notice just as a, as a parenthetically for a moment, God says in verse 17, he says something I think is quite remarkable. He says, the violence done to Babylon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities of all who dwell in them. Wow. What was Lebanon known for? The Bible makes it clear. Lebanon was known for its forests. The cedars of Lebanon. And scholars believe that they had total disregard that the earth was all about them. Their inhabitation was all about them. They didn't care about anything else. And then they didn't care about animals. Now listen, I am not a tree-hugging, pita-loving pastor. But should we not have regard for the earth that we're in? Should we not have regard and, and, and treat animals in a way that's at some levels humane and use the use of animals to be done in the best possible way to take care of us? I get we have dominion over them and all of that. The scripture's clear on that. But it's not hard to think even in our own history. The pictures with our own eyes we see of thousands of bison and buffalo laying out dead. The only thing off of their bodies are their skins. The decimation of whole animal groups because we want one portion of them. This is what 
God is speaking against the Babylonians about. And he's asking the question, what lengths will we go? Will we decimate forests? Will we decimate animal groups? Will we just take anybody out in our path, whether human or plant life or animal life? How far will we go to build our kingdom? And that's the decision you have to make. Are you going to forsake God and in doing so, live a life that says it's all about me, I'm going to pursue everything I want, and I give no regard for anybody else except for me because I'm God, no one else is. That's choice number one. Now, my second choice is very simple and very short. You can forsake God and pursue your sins and see it in the evil deeds that are done, but here's the problem. There's an eventual demise. There's an eventual demise. God says, Babylon, you're going to fall. Notice in the passage, after all of these things take place, to their insatiable appetite, verse 8, you will be the one who will be devoured until there's nothing left of you, Babylon, he says. To their injustice, verse 11, the very walls you build will cry out against you and your corruption and call you guilty. Remember that. The walls will cry out. Don't forget that. I'll talk about that in a moment. In verse 13, regard to the injury of others. The very cities that you built on the backs of people, you will watch be destroyed by fire. To their incitement and means of intoxication, verse 16, the Babylonians will be shamed. Literally, their bodies will be put on display for all to see. They will be dishonored. They will be mocked by other nations. They will be put to utter shame. To their idolatry, in their time of needs, their gods will be mute and impotent, unable to deliver them from destruction. In a nutshell, nation of Babylon, rebellious people, at a moment of God's choosing, in a place that you will not know, God will appoint judgment. And in that day, it will be too late. Where do I get that? Let's pivot to the book of Daniel for a moment. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. If you don't know where the book of Daniel is, if you're in a pew Bible, <clears throat> you can find the book of Daniel, once I find it, on uh, page 742. We're not going to stay there long, but I want to show you something. I want to show you the trustworthiness of God's message. Because what's going to happen in about 100 years is exactly what God says is going to take place. The book of Daniel, what's the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel tells us the story that this new empire, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, come and invade Israel and invade Judah, and they take the people of Israel and Judah, and they bring them back as slaves in the land of Babylon. And during that time, they use them to build up their kingdoms, to build up their nations. And for decades, the nation of Babylon is the strongest, most powerful nation around. And Daniel and his friends are the ones that, that are brought in and used for their intellect and their, their uh, good talents to make the nation of Babylon even greater. Babylon becomes so great that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, says, listen, I think I'm God. So build me a statue that looks like me, that when that statue is brought out, everybody bows down and worships. Remember the story Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That's the nation of Babylon. They're doing exactly what God says they were going to do. And in Daniel chapter 5, remember what I told you to remember? The walls will cry out your guilt. 
In Daniel chapter 5, what happens? Belshazzar, the, the, the uh, uh, new king after the King Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he throws this great feast, and everybody's drunk, remember? Incitement through intoxication. Everybody's drunk, and they're having a great time. Thousands upon thousands of the lords, it says, of the Chaldeans is there. And they're having a great time. They're living like, like many, many pagan individuals in our life. They're eating, they're drinking, and they're merry. And little do they know that today, God will demand their life. And so they're enjoying the party. And then all of a sudden, the wall starts to speak. You know the story, right? The hand starts writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And Belshazzar, the, the king, says, wait a minute. I don't know what this means. What in the world's going on? Whose hand is that? How is it writing on the wall? Someone go figure this out. And they bring in people from all of the Chaldeans to try to figure it out. And no one can until the queen says, Hey, I think there's a guy named Daniel whose God is different than our gods. And he seems to know these things. Let's bring him in. And Daniel comes in. And Daniel says, I can interpret it. And notice in the text in Daniel... In verse 24 of chapter 5, Daniel says, This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been found, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes. Fast forward to verse 30. That very Nights, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, help me out, was killed, gone. What happened to his kingdom? Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. When God deals with the pagan unbeliever, they will live life like it's a party. But at a moment that they don't know, God will say, your life has been found wanting and it's too late. And in that moment, the sad thing is they will stand before an almighty God and God will not say, well done. God will say to them, whoa. So don't go that way. Don't go that way. It ends in demise. So where do we go? You're like, holy cow. If his second point's as long as his first point, we're going to be here a long time. It's very short. So what do we do? Instead of forsaking God and pursuing our sin, we follow God. We follow God and we wait for our Savior. Habakkuk knows I can't go the way of the Babylonians. So what am I to do? Notice in verse 1 of chapter 2 back in Habakkuk, listen to what he says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me and how he will answer concerning my complaint. And so the Lord answers, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Notice what he says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So some of you are sitting here today and going, but the way of the Babylonians seems fun. The way of the Babylonians seems like everything rose right for them. And what does God say? Wait for it. Wait for it. Their demise is coming. And so what are we to wait for? 
We're to wait for the promises of God to take place. And the Bible says in verse 4 that how we do this is we live by faith. Instead of living for ourselves, we live in accordance to God's plans and purposes and we wait on Him. And it may seem like it's taking a long time. It may seem like He's delaying His eventual return. But we wait and God says, listen, it will come to fruition. Just wait and see. The woes to the Babylonians is a reminder to the New Testament Christian that though it seems like God is delayed in his return, that just like he brought down the nation of Babylon, one day he will depose the people and kingdoms of this world that are hell-bent against him. And we've got to trust that. And so there are three things that we've got to trust. Number one, we've got to trust and believe and live with this thought in mind. While the world is going to hell, God is winning the hearts of men. Write that down. God is winning the hearts of men. Notice verse 14. Amidst all of these things that the nation of Babylon is doing, notice what God says. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers over the sea. God says, while you're living for yourself and building your own kingdom, God says, I'm winning people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And I'm winning them, and I'm changing their hearts, and I'm giving them heart transplants, taking up their heart of stone, and putting in a heart of flesh. And I'm doing so, so that men will glorify me. Men will be obedient to me. And I'm doing this work, and I will tell you, we watched that work take place in baptisms this morning, right? I'm no longer a sinner. Now I've been made a saint. I no longer am living for self. Now I'm living for God. What an ongoing testimony that God is doing this and will do this until the day of his return. He's winning the hearts of people. Trust that. Believe in that. Hope in that. Number two, that one day his wrath will be poured out against all wickedness. But when God, how long God, Habakkuk says, and notice what Habakkuk is told by God himself, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The cup of God's wrath will one day be poured out. And the Bible says is even being poured out now against all wickedness and, and evil deeds. But one day in one fell swoop, God will address all the wrongs, all the sins, all of the debauchery that we have had to endure for our lives. God will one day address every wrong and every sin as the righteous king and the righteous judge. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? You see, one of the reasons why we don't live as the Babylonians do, as followers of Christ, is because we know there's a day of reckoning that's going to take place. We know we're going to have to stand before God. And our desire is, is that we would stand before Him and He would say, well done, good and faithful servant, not woe to you. And so we live differently. Because we know there's a judgment coming and that God cannot be mocked. A man and a woman reaps what they sow. Number three, we put our faith, our hope, and our trust in the idea that God's name will be worshipped by all. But the Lord, verse 20, in his, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It sure does seem like Babylon's going to have its day. 
It sure does seem like Babylon gets all the good stuff. It sure does seem that sin prospers and obedience suffers. But I want you to know there's a day coming. The book of Philippians tells us that on that day, every knee will bow. Every Babylon will bow. Every Babylonian will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And there won't be anybody who says, but wait, but I'm not sure, or I don't know, or I don't want to. The world will be silent before the Almighty God. And so we believe God's moving in the hearts of people. We believe that God's wrath will come. And we believe one day we will stand before God and all the earth will be silent in his glory and his majesty. And so what do we do with this passage of scripture? Let me close out with this. We do three things. We examine three things. Number one, we examine our profession. Am I truly the righteous who live by faith? A lot of us would say we would. A lot of us say that, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm doing, uh, I'm wanting to do the will of God. But are we? Or is our profession fake? Is our profession falling on deaf ears? Do we really believe and live out what we believe and say we believe about Christ in our life? Number two, we have to examine our practices. Our practices. As we listen to the woes of the Babylonians as New Testament Christians under grace, we have to ask ourselves this very hard question. Do I sound more Babylonian than I do Christian? Is there a lot more Babylonian blood in me than there is of Jesus' blood? Do I seem to be more like that, pursuing injury and insult? Do I seem to be pursuing this air of invincibility? Do I seem to harm people for my own good? Am I building a kingdom unto myself? As Christians, we have to ask that. Here's the crazy thing. Judah was going to be mad about this from God because what they would say is, listen, we're not as bad as they are. And Christian, some of us are looking at our neighbors or our friends and we're saying, but I'm not as bad as my neighbors are. So maybe you're not as bad as them. But are some of your practices, some of your entertainment, some of the things that you do, are they showing yourself to be more Babylonian than they are as a Christian? And finally, we need to look at our priorities. Babylon built themselves up for their own glory. Notice at the beginning of the chapter what we are built for. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, verse 2 says, so he may run who reads it. What Habakkuk is being told is, I want you to be a proclaimer. I want you to be a living announcement of what God is doing. And that brings us to this question, as followers of Jesus Christ, if our profession is that we are the righteous who are living by faith, if we are living differently than the world, then our priority should not be to build a kingdom of our own, but to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, knowing that all the things that we're worried about will be added unto us. So what is our job? To be the salt and light of the world. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. We have been called to be prophets and priests and we've been called to proclaim that good news of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. Are you going the road of Babylon or are you going the way of Christ? The choice is yours. And your eternal destination will determine, will be determined by that choice. There's a fork in the road. Which way will you go?